Humans love stories. We have been telling stories to each other since the beginning of recorded history. Storytelling is the beginning of recorded history because the beginning of recorded history is just stories that were verbal that somebody finally figured out how to write down. So I think that there is a deep instinctual element of how we relate to each other that storytelling facilitates. You're listening to That Worked, a show that breaks down the careers of top founders and executives and pulls out those key items that led to their success. I'm your host, Callan Harrington, founder of Flash Growth, and I couldn't be more excited that you're here. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of That Worked. This week, I'm joined by Sam Rose. Sam is the founder and CEO of Manifest, a full-stack product agency in 3PL. Before Manifest, Sam founded the award-winning kitchenwares brand Gear, which she led as CEO until its acquisition by Pattern Brands in 2021. I had a ton of fun in this conversation. Sam is not only an incredible entrepreneur, but she's also hilarious. We talked about what Sam describes as the best day ever problem. And we also dove into the benefits of working in an early stage company. And Sam gave us one of the most honest explanations of how to work with friends and family that I've ever heard. This is a pretty common topic, and people usually are on one side of this or the other. And Sam has been very successful working alongside friends and family for years, and I loved hearing what she calls living a boundaryless life. Now, the part of the conversation that I love the most was talking about the power of storytelling. And I loved hearing how Sam uses storytelling to better connect with people. I think anyone in any position can benefit from hearing Sam's breakdown. So with that, let's get to the show. Sam, welcome to the show. I'm excited to have you here. I'd love to start out, tell me about the parking lot in Delaware. Oh my gosh, I wish you'd been there. I could have used the help. So I have this trope in my life and in my business. I call it the best day ever problem. The best day ever for an entrepreneur is when the call comes. The call could be Oprah, it could be Target. It could be, it's like a scaling event and customers want what you have. And the joke goes like the worst day ever is the very next day because then you got to deal with the consequences of your success. The line around the corner to the bakery and then every store in town is out of flour or whatever. So my best day, worst day ever <laughs> problem or one of the many happened, I mean, the worst day ever was the parking lot in Delaware. So Target calls and they're like, hey, are you EDI compliant? We want you in our store. Like, can you check all these boxes? And we're like, totally, yes. <laughs> Just like, absolutely, yes. <laughs> no blinking. And we get the PO. And we call our 3PL and we're like, hey, we've got a PO from Target. You're going to help us fulfill it now. And they're like, no, we're not. But yes, you are. <laughs> they're like, No, we're not. So my husband and I, because by this time, like the business is six years in and I've recruited him from his cool corporate job. And now we're like in entrepreneurial and marital bliss together. I'm like, sweetie, we're getting a box truck. <laughs> we're going to Delaware. And we show up at our 3PL and get all of our stuff like out and stick it in a box truck and drive to a storage facility in Delaware and fulfilled 10,000 orders in the rain 
in November from the parking lot in Delaware. And that was really two weeks of the worst day ever. But I like to tell that story because it really was an inflection point in the growth of me as an entrepreneur and of our brand. Like we started a 3PL after that. And we learned a lot about operations and growing a scrappy business. And when that product brand that was implicated in the parking lot in Delaware uh, was acquired, we were like, hey, maybe we'll stick around and be a 3PL for a little while and help people design stuff. So that's manifest sort of genesis in that in that parking lot. I love that. And it's what's so funny for me hearing that is now I've since founded my own company, but I was on the sales side, leading sales teams. And I started out as an individual contributor sales rep. But I can tell you in the enterprise side, in the tech world, the amount of times somebody be like, well, how are the APIs? And as a salesperson, oh, they're great. Yeah, no, we'll integrate with anything. <laughs> and then the engineers get word and they're like, no, no, Cal, we can't do this. Not a chance. <laughs> so I love hearing that story. And one of the things I'd love to talk about is you mentioned this best day ever problem. How did the company rally around that? What did that look like? You mentioned that you got the box truck and everything else, but I have to assume there had to have been a lot more behind the scenes to make that happen. And almost a lot of times the business gets put on hold. Did that happen? What did that look like? Yeah. I wish there had been more of company to rally around. <laughs> there were six of us at the time. And a lot of those people are still here, actually. Everybody shows up in a moment like that. So we had Brian's sister came down. She subsequently became an employee. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Kathleen. Family and friends come down. We're all working from the parking lot. There's no toilets. There's no electricity. We got a Wi-Fi hotspot. We were sleeping in the car and buying envelopes at Staples. So all hands come on deck in a moment like that. And you, what I love about moments like that too is that they're really the proving ground for entrepreneurs, not only as leaders, because you're like, how do I tell everyone how bad <laughs> this is, but how fine it will be in two weeks. And then just gratitude. People really show up and they, you know, they left their houses like that afternoon and drove down and tried to help us pull it all together. Those are also big moments of learning how you're going to need to grow. Like we realized that we needed to have our own fulfillment operation and a roof over our own heads. And that turned into a bunch of jobs for people that are working at the three P. I mean, it's a different building now, but much bigger operation. So everybody goes all hands on deck and then you're like friends forever. People come and go in every business, but shared experiences like that, shared challenges are really part of the DNA of a business that then in easier times, you're like, well, that's nothing. Do you remember the parking lot? <laughs> and, you know, then <laughs> that's, the, that's the hallway conversation and the water cooler conversation. And we have a joke here that's like, how hard could it be? Because almost nothing could ever be as hard as that. And if it is hard, it's like, well, done this before, you know, we got reps on challenge. So yeah, I like moments like that because as long as you can bear the time it takes to get through them, you come out so much stronger as an individual and as a team as a result. It's amazing how much it brings the team together. Well, you know what? Actually, it, it goes one of two ways. It either brings people together or it tears it apart. And actually, the I think sometimes even the tearing the apart okay because you really realize really quickly, it's like, do you want to be part of an early stage company or not? And that's okay if you're not, but there isn't, and I talk about this quite a bit where it's, you're going to work really hard in early stage company. It's hard to get, in my opinion, and 
it's hard to have a lot of balance in your life in those very early stages. And some people it's amazing and some people it's not. And there's no right or wrong answer. It's just I found that to be the reality. I'm curious to get your opinion on that. Yeah. Yeah, I think I have kind of two emotional and intellectual reactions to that. One is that early stage is not for the faint of heart, but it is for the fun of heart. If you can find fun in the multiple hat wearing and just that every day is different and that some days are just the absolute worst grind, but that maybe tomorrow is going to be the best day ever, (laughs) then you can self-actualize in that environment. And I think one of the things that's worked for me and this boundaryless life that I have is not for everybody, but I'm just playing the game. And when I call it a game, sometimes I have to be careful not to imply that I'm trivializing what we do as a business. I take it very, very seriously, but I'm in it for the love of the game. And so when I have to work on a weekend, I'm just playing and it's like a chess tournament or something like that. Like it doesn't really bother me. That is not for everybody. I think a lot of people thrive with more clear boundaries than I have discovered I need. But I think the other thing that's maybe a little bit unusual about my circumstance is that I work with a lot of friends and family. So I'm having fun with the people that I love problem solving on the world stage. And to me, what could be better than that? So that's sort of like maybe my, I don't know how much that could be generalized to everybody as a piece of advice or whatnot. But if I could turn it into a piece of advice to dispense is that if you can find the fun in it, uh, then no matter what you're doing at that early stage kind of startup life phase, and no matter how challenging it is, you can actualize into, well, I'm just solving big problems and that is fun. Then it's like not work anymore. And then, then you're infinitely capable. And that turns on like just the energy machine of like, well, I'm never going to stop because I'm having the day of my life. Other thing that I've discovered about finding colleagues for whom that is also true is that moments like that of parking lot moments like that, uh, where you're all under high pressure, prove to everybody how capable they are under pressure and also how appropriate it is for everyone to be wearing multiple hats in an early stage. Like the folks here that have been here for a long time at my business, we've packed boxes together. We've built software together. (laughs) Like we've had the highest highs and the lowest lows and the cleanest days and the dirtiest days. We've gone to trade shows together. We've gone to not trade shows, but we have gone to trade shows, but we've gone to like I don't know. The Hester Street Fair, street fairs is the phrase I was looking for. Everybody's been a salesperson. Everybody's been on the fulfillment team. Everybody's been on the product design team. You know, we'll bring a prototype in and feedback is welcome from everyone. Everybody's named a color of a product that we've made. So everyone gets to play in all of the different sandboxes of the business. And I I think that that's a very joyful part of wearing a lot of hats in an early stage company. And I think sometimes the phrase wearing a lot of hats can be, I don't know, either like abused or pilloried and like, if well, if a business is asking you to wear so many hats, then like they're probably not paying you enough because you're overworked. And it's like, if a business is giving you exposure to so many different types of collaboration and problem solving, then it's a two-way street. And that's the excitement that I find in it. I mean, obviously I'm not, I'm not using it as an excuse for asking people to do too much. I'm using it as a pathway for giving myself and as a result, everybody else exposure to like all of the different facets of building. And that's pretty cool. 
Working in an early stage startup is probably going to be one of the fastest ways to test out all sorts of different places of a company to see what you really love to do. There's not too many places where you can drink from a fire hose in so many different places at one time. So I'm really interested in how your approach to working with close friends and family. But before I go there, I'd love to hear a little bit about the founding story of gear just in general. I think it's a really interesting story from the research that I've done. And you've had two that I saw just in the research, really successful Kickstarter campaigns. Why Kickstarter? What led to that? And, and what was the thought process behind that? Yeah, well, you know, it was the, it was the time, man. <laughs> it was the time. So I, I ran nine Kickstarter campaigns for gear, eight for gear and, and then one for another brand that I founded called Voltaire. So the founding of that business was really just like a close to my heart problem solve. I had this idea for a one piece spatula. I thought, you know, ideas are cheap. This probably exists. I'm going to Google it. <laughs> Didn't exist, which was the first surprise. The second surprise was that I could invent it and successfully prototyped and made one and patented it and all of that. And I just decided that I loved product and started to build a brand around these kind of single piece silicone kitchen tools that were durable and colorful. And I used to describe them because I'm a big dork as the platonic form of like each of these tools. So they were very simple too. I mean, when I say platonic form, it's wait, I have one here because I always have a spatula nearby. So I'm going to do a quick anecdote. I told my girlfriend, I said, hey, you know those, you know what spatula we have? The one that you like love? She said, yeah. She, I said, I think I'm talking to the founder that created that spatula today. Yes. I'm that girl. And also, it's probably funny to note, she's, the, her first thing was, what, did something happen to it? Like, she was generally worried that something happened to it. <laughs> did you break it? No, it's indestructible. <laughs> so, yeah, so, so that, I mean, just that moment, that nugget of, I have a really little problem that I am very passionate about solving for myself. I mean, what better inflection point might you have into entering an entrepreneurial journey than a problem that's close to your heart? And fortunately for me, it was like solvable using the talents that I had. So uh, grew that business for about 12, 11 years before it was acquired. And so the new business that we run is really around helping other people do the same thing. And our joke is that it's a 12-year-old, six-year-old, three-year-old business because Manifest has existed for three years. And six years ago, we started helping other people with design and 3PL services. So sort of like what we're doing at Manifest has been around for six years and then 12 years ago, we started gear on Kickstarter. The why Kickstarter to track back to that part of the question, you know, there was a moment where crowdfunding was news in and of itself. And the story was as much about how it was coming to market as what the product was. So over the course of the several years that I built and ran that business, we ran nine different Kickstarter campaigns. It was an awesome launch platform. We found great community there. We found great feedback and product ideas there. And frankly, it was a way to kind of de-risk what we were doing. So that very first production run, and I'd never owned a business before. I'm just like, how do I, how do I test this? How do I market test this? And uh, I could do all the research I wanted. And I could have all the conviction and my product design that I wanted. But the experience of actually going out and trying to get someone who wasn't, you know, my grandma, who I really love <laughs> to buy one. <laughs> my grandma's going to give me 10 bucks no matter what. You know, she's been <laughs> buying Girl Scout cookies from me since I was a kid. <laughs> but to have a person that you've never met and don't have any relationship with agree to give you money 
for your thing, and then you deliver on it faithfully, that experience is really hard to replicate and in any other environment. And crowdfunding was a way that I could do a lot of that very, very quickly. So I got reps on sales and reps on storytelling and conversation and a great community to help me, encourage me to go build other things, which worked out great. I know you talk about, you mentioned storytelling, and I know you talk about storytelling quite a bit. Why is that so important to you? Humans love stories. We have been telling stories to each other since the beginning of recorded history. Storytelling is the beginning of recorded history because the beginning of recorded history is just stories that were verbal that somebody finally figured out how to write down. (laughs) So I think that there is a deep instinctual element of how we relate to each other that storytelling facilitates. And I enjoy that process. I respond to it as a consumer And I also find that it's the best way to just paint a picture really, really quickly. I mean, you started with a story too, so I know that you know this. How else can I get you feeling the emotions that I'm feeling about my thing? And I can't just do it by telling you what features it has or where you can buy it or how much it costs or why you should want it. I need to connect with you on a deeper level. And for me, that's not facile. I'm not just doing that as a tool. I'm doing that because that's how I get excited. (laughs) And As you might detect, I am like an excitable person. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like all in all the time. So that is the why for me. It's how I respond and it's how I relate and connect to other people. And it just so happens that that's like, it's a good way to sell things too. But that's the side effect of it. Side effect of connection. I'm a huge, huge, huge believer in storytelling. What is your process for it? Do you have a structure that you like to use? How did you learn and start to perfect the craft of storytelling just in general? Oh, gosh, that's such a good question. I read a lot. I read constantly. So I think I'm in tune with being told stories all of the time. I was an English major and I was a writing concentration. So I've had a lot of classical training in how to storytell and how to create narrative arcs. But I think to de-intellectualize it a little you know, when I'm telling a story, I'm really just connecting with an emotion that I'm having and like trying to make you feel what I feel a little bit. And I think that you can do that in a very structured way, hero, challenge, obstacle to overcome, (laughs) surprise twist in the middle. But ultimately, I think I'm saying out loud the things that I'm experiencing, and I'm trying to contextualize what's happening around me in the form of stories. And it just so happens that like, in saying it out loud, we can relate to each other. I don't have a particular trope that I'm trying to fit any of this into other than the trope of being an excitable person. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I think it's interesting. It's something, it's an area too, that I've been diving into more, really getting into the particulars of it. Like you just mentioned that the different structures and interesting thing that I've, I've found lately is how oral storytelling is different than written storytelling. And The Moth came out with a book on how to tell a story in a moth style, which is more of the, the oral storytelling. And I think it's, I thought it was kind of fascinating. And I wanted more of what you just said, like five point story structure and everything else like that. And it wasn't, but it told you a, a way to do it. I just thought it was really interesting. So I hear exactly what you're saying on that. I think one of the advantages of verbal storytelling too, and this is, this is in my way back machine, but when I was in college majoring in writing, I focused on poetry. And 
So there were these like very tight structures to fit a lot of ideas in very, very concisely and to make a word do the work of five words and then to use the structure and rhyme and rhythm as sort of like leverage on those words and then how to pack them into each other and then how to make it easy to find the next right word and write the next right line. And I think one of the really fun, playful elements of verbal storytelling is that you can have this kind of like warbling and intonation that you can use to add emphasis and the words don't have to do quite so much work. (laughs) And I'm used to having to make a very, very few words do so much work. And I love storytelling in person because my hands can help, you know, (laughs) like, and my face can help. And there's so many other ways to elicit reaction. And I think that's the other fun element is that it's an engagement with an audience uh, when you get to storytell to a live audience. And and that part is really, really fun. It becomes a two-way street and I can feed off of you as much as you can feed off of me. It's so true. It's so true. It's so interesting when you really dive into it. So you mentioned, so you ended up selling to gear to pattern brands. Yeah. And once you exited this, one of the things I want, and I want to come back to this that we had talked about earlier, you mentioned that a lot of these people are still with you today. And in particular, the one I'm curious to talk about is you said a lot of them are close friends and family. And some people can do this. Some people can't. What always worked for me was if we started working together and we became friends, that worked. But sometimes I'll struggle to work with like my close friends. How do you make it work? Do you have processes? Is there certain boundaries you have to put in place? What does that look like? No, it's no boundaries. That's the secret. (laughs) (laughs) You did say that earlier. I should have came back to that. I'm kidding, but not kidding. Well, here's a question back for you. So the friends that you have made through work, would you found a business with them? 100%. 100%. Why? Absolutely. I... Okay, this is a good question. Well, one, the reason I found a business with him is I know we work really well together. And we became friends through that. I think my friends that I've had outside of that, I don't know. I think I'm more concerned at, am I going to be able to, if I, especially if I'm the one that has to manage them, that could be tough. If we don't agree on something, I don't want it to impact the friendship as, as much. But with the people that I've already, I became friends with, We've already been through all of it, especially since we've all done startups and we've been through a couple of these. I know how they're going to react in a business perspective when their back's really against the wall and we're all very stressed out and we've made it through a lot of those. So I think that's probably why I'm more comfortable with it. Okay, so you hit on the right nugget, which is that you've got to know them very, very well. But once you know these folks well, you're already comfortable with the idea of managing each other, probably. You're already comfortable with needing to lean on each other or expect more or you know have to put in the extra mile. You're already comfortable with creating structure or working within structure together. So when I advocate working with friends and family, which I, which I proudly and vocally do, it's friends and family that I know very well. And it's because I know them very well. The very same answer to your question was like, you've been through it together. I'm like, yeah, we've been through it together. And I know that there's nobody I would rather spend a hard day or a great day with than family and friends. I mean, not everybody at the business is family or friends, but the folks have who have started that way or the friends that I've made through business they all share this archetype of being people that I wouldn't want to spend the best day of my life with or the worst day of my life with. 
which goes back to the entrepreneurial story 101 of the best day ever. (laughs) The days that we are hunting as entrepreneurs are the best days ever. And I want to spend the best days ever of my whole life with my family and friends and with new friends, hopefully, that have come from the professional context, but that become friends at work. And I know that we are also going to be spending the worst days ever together. (laughs) Well, like there's nobody better for that either. I think you you mentioned boundaries, and I think that that's an important thing to acknowledge. You have to have a, a pretty high comfort with a boundaryless life for this to work successfully. I think where I've seen collaborations, work collaborations with friends or family not work so well is where people are seeking really solid boundaries or or need that just for their themselves in their lives, which and there's nothing wrong with that. And you'll find that you you lose that. You lose the ability to have a boundary because if a work problem trails into six or seven or eight PM and now you're home with the kids, but you're still problem solving, you're problem solving together. <laughs> like there is no boundary. So it's not that you have to want to take boundaries away. It's they will be taken from you. And if you're not comfortable with that, it doesn't mean that every interaction all the time has to be boundaryless, but you have to be comfortable with the fact that boundaries will be taken from you if you're on the entrepreneurial journey and compound that with the boundaries being taken away from the family and friends that you work with. And unless there's just like total resolve that that's a fine thing, that that's acceptable, then it can get really uncomfortable, hard. That's when it doesn't work. That's interesting. That might be the most realistic explanation I've ever heard on how this can work. Because when I think about this, it doesn't shut off, right? And I know that. And that's, of course, can be a problem at at times. And But what you just said is so true. Like, they're going to come up. There's just nothing you can do, especially if you're the CEO or partner or whatever, because you have to do it. You have to react to it. You don't really have a choice often. So I appreciate that. If I'm hearing what you're saying, what I'm hearing you say is, it's got to be boundaryless. For it to work, it has to be boundaryless because there's going to be times, even if you have a loose boundary in place, there's going to be times where that boundary is going to get bulldozed and you have to be comfortable and be okay with with that boundary being removed for that that point in time. Did I hear that correctly? Is that right? Yeah. If I was to really try to frame it out as like a self-management framework, I don't know that it needs to be boundaryless by design but it will be boundaryless empirically at some point. <laughs> like work will seep in or family will seep in. And if you're not just comfortable and level set with that, then it can be problematic. It doesn't mean that you can't not be working or that you can't not take a minute out of work to go do something with your family or, or to be with the person that you love that you're working with, but that you have to be comfortable with the appearance and disappearance of the clarity around when what is working and what is not working. Can I ask you a question when we're getting ready for bed? (laughs) Or no, is that not okay? But what if someone just asked me a question that's really urgent and I know that you're the person that has the answer, but the boundary will disappear. (laughs) You don't have to design it so that it's never there. You just have to be comfortable that it has like an invisibility cloak. (laughs) And like, sometimes he's going to throw the invisibility cloak on and be like, bye. (laughs) And you're really, okay. Like (laughs) it's Saturday and we're, and we're hanging out at the beach, but I got a work question. But see, that's a superpower too, because if everybody's comfortable with that, then you can problem solve together in any context. You can play the game in any context. And that's, I find that to be 
really freeing and also very efficient. That's where some of my in- infinite energy machine comes from. It's, but for me, work doesn't feel like work. Work feels like proactive, excited problem solving. And I think that's a big part of it too. I think if work for you feels like a grind, then it's not fu- gonna be fun to have the boundary gone. But if work feels to you like, damn, that game was fun. When do we get to play again? Then like, well, forever. (laughs) (laughs) I'm back right now. Well, I'm so glad you said that's a perfect segue. So was it a foregone conclusion you were starting Manifest after exiting gear? I mean, I know you had had a couple of other companies as well, but it feels like you're going back in heavy from just what I've gathered. Is that right? Or am I off on that? Yeah, no, we've more than doubled down. Maybe it was a foregone conclusion. I've not heard it characterized like that, but I feel seen. (laughs) (laughs) Like, so for a couple of reasons, first, the impetus for selling gear was to give ourselves freedom to work on this wasn't for financial freedom or to go to the beach. We had a lot of irons in the fire. We were building we were building out our 3PL business. We were building out our design agency business. We were building SaaS. And then we had this brand and it was all bootstrapped. And it was just like a lot of, it was a lot of work, a lot of fun. And so a compelling reason to sell for me was like, gee, I think this problem is going to be really interesting to solve. It's not that gears problems uninteresting, but I'd solved a lot of it and I could have happily continued building it. But I had other problems that needed energy to be solved and that were newer to me. And I thought, yeah, I'll trade that. And I love gear. I mean, it's, I still, I mean, of course. So it was hard to let it go. I wasn't done with it, but I also was just starting with some other things that really needed love and attention and energy and focus. And so I earned the right and the time to go and do that. So sort of as an answer to your question, it was a foregone conclusion because the reason for selling gear was that it was a foregone conclusion. We were already in this other business. We were already launched and we had to find a way to make sure that we were giving it enough focus that it could grow, which fortunately has been the case. But I think maybe a nuanced answer to your question is, is in selling one business, would I almost certainly have started another? And the answer is yes. I think I would much prefer to be working a long day solving problems that I enjoy and that engage my body, my mind, and all of it than just hanging out somewhere. So for my kids' sake, I hope I can prove myself wrong at some point. (laughs) They're like, hey, we're here. (laughs) They get plenty of me. They get plenty of time. We spend lots of time together and and they're they're such a blast. And I feel well-balanced as an individual, as a parent, as a partner, and as an entrepreneur but I don't ever anticipate that I will be finished problem solving on a permanent basis, even if we like sold manifest tomorrow. Yeah. And it's interesting It's for the repeat founders that we've had on the show. And then I just know personally, it's very similar. It's they couldn't imagine doing anything else. So I'm curious, what did you do differently when you started manifest based off the learnings that you, you had when founding gear? Well, that's a great question. I didn't do that much differently. I probably should have, but we were already started. You know, we were already in it. So I didn't have that much time to step back and reflect on what went well and what didn't go well. But what I can say is that I'm doing some things differently now and I would do things some things differently if I were to start gear over again. I think that 
And I will share those now. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say, what would be those things? What were those things that you would do differently? So I'm an English major, as we've discussed. And I probably would have given myself some time for a bit more financial education before starting a business. I got that on the fly. So it's, it's here now. But at the time, I was just like a kid, frankly, with a cool product idea that I that I couldn't get out of my head. And so the financial structuring of the business wasn't really top of mind. Corporate governance wasn't top of mind. We did things right. And I think in some cases, we got very lucky or we were just very hardworking and capable. So it, it worked out. But I would probably spend a little bit more time as a young entrepreneur reading an accounting book and just getting a basic financial orientation. I think that that's like super valuable to me in my job today. Of course, that was a business with zero employees or just me and I was free. And this is a business with 70 employees. So like some of it is like required, (laughs) required reading. (laughs) Um, Corporate governance becomes required reading when there are 70 people on payroll. That's one thing I would do differently. I would prepare differently and prepare better. Here's the thing about product that I would do differently gear and its products were inexpensive. We had great margins, like amazing margins on a percentage basis. On a gross margin dollar basis, we made a couple of bucks a sale, like a couple of bucks a spatula. And so that forced us into being omni-channel because we couldn't afford direct-to-consumer ads and to just be digitally native. So it actually had a great side effect because it created operational maturity for us really early on. And we've now like monetized that in the form of our new business because what we do is backend operations and we do it well, but it really limited our growth. If I was going to start a new product brand, I would choose something that not only I believed would have good and healthy margin potential, but also gross margin dollars. So I'd be selling something that was just like and also easy and small and easy to ship. <laughs> Make something small and easy to ship that pe- sell diamond rings and like, <laughs> like sell something tiny and expensive <laughs> because I think it was challenging to grow $2 at a time. I do find it super interesting though that you made the superpower of operation, of having operational efficiency, which drove you to the next business and starting out as a service business. And now you're spinning a tech company. Or I don't want to say spinning out, you're you've created a tech company within the service business. How has that transition been for you? Well, I will say that being the founder of a SaaS product requires a lot of different hard skills than being the founder of a hard goods product. And I I ran up the self-education mountain of hard goods very comfortably. I'm a product designer. I understood manufacturing. I really got into the details and into the weeds on like how physical products came to life. And I was very capable of designing them. So all of that really worked. And because they're hard skills, not hard skills don't really translate, like soft skills translate, but hard skills don't necessarily. And so like, being a good business owner and a good founder and a good leader of people, those soft skills, those translated. I built a software team very, very quickly. And we started building product really, really quickly. And I had like the product roadmap defined and set down. But some of the hard skills around SaaS were just like, I didn't know what I didn't know. Like system architecture was like, I get front end development. I can code lightly and some light Python and like HTML. So I didn't feel completely out of my depth, but we're like building system architecture and infrastructure and Lambda files. And I was like, whoa, (laughs) starting another product business would have just been 
zero to one so fast, zero to one on SaaS after 10 years of running a hard goods business, consumer goods business was just like much slower. That doesn't necessarily mean I would do any of it differently. That was just a hard thing. My joke is it's not a dream journal. It's like, it's like business operations software, commerce. You know, there's a lot of APIs. There's like a lot of things to connect to. And when it breaks, well, I should say it cannot break. Our system must be stable all the time because it's managing people's orders, inventory, their catalog. It's connecting to a lot of other systems and points of demand. And that took a really long time to build a stable system. So we couldn't just like go to market quickly with a scrappy version of what we were doing, because what we were saying was we're going to take over these other systems that for sure exist for you. We're not giving you an optional new system, like a cool bell and whistle that your business has never used before. We're replacing software that is part of the core operational tooling of any commerce stack and replacing an existing solution is a much harder, not only a much harder sale, but also just like a much less trivial exercise than like try my dream journal. Yeah. Nothing against dream journals. Nothing against dream journals, of course. Well, one of the things I think it's really interesting that you did is, and I see this quite a bit, and I've given people advice of service companies that want to go into SaaS, because my own background has been in, in SaaS, but solve that problem internally so that you can get more efficiency out of your people in the services business. And then I see it all the time is once you have that bill, then you can take it to the outside and it gets a win-win no matter what. And then you can grow a, a great SaaS business out of that. And it sounds like that's exactly what you did. Is that right? Yeah, that's exactly what I did. And what I underestimated was that some of the features that were mission critical to us as a business weren't necessarily mission critical to other people in our ICP. So if we had accepted a less perfect solution for ourselves earlier on, we could have gone to market earlier and monetized earlier. And that just would have been nice because having money is nice because then we can hire more people and move more quickly. (laughs) It's key. Yeah. Yeah. So we limited our ability to go to market early because we were building something that was really robust. And I think if I were to do it over again, I would still build a system that would solve my problems and then try to tell the story of that solving other people's problems too. But I might've accepted solving fewer of my own problems earlier. So you've successfully exited a company, you've created other companies, you're now growing and scaling a a SaaS business. What comes next? Well, what's next is I sometimes describe what we're doing today at Manifest as sort of this, we're taking three arcs through building our tooling up our business, then SaaS kind of underpins all of this. But from a service perspective and from like a what can we deliver on perspective, I always thought, okay, like first what I need to do, I'm going to take our superpowers of building products, manufacturing them at scale and cost effectively, high quality, and of getting things out there and storytelling and of getting things to people's doorsteps. I don't even, they're not really superpowers. There's powers. <laughs> There's things we can do. And I'm going to expose that to the world as services. Step one is let's do this as an agency. And we'll use our agency as a testing ground and a kind of maturing ground for getting really, really good at doing for others what we were able to do very successfully for ourselves. Step one is agency. Well, let's spend three or four years doing that, just like really getting good at it, getting consistent cash flow out of these businesses and using that to grow and build into other areas of expertise. And that 
part of the story really only lasted like two years. Story number two started. And I always knew that story number two would start. It's just like it started so much faster than I anticipated, which was for us to be an accelerator or an incubator. And the way that I differentiate what we do as an agency or a 3PL from what we do as an accelerator is sort of in, in two ways. One way we can define it as if we do like five things for you, then you're basically in our accelerator. We're powering your growth. If we're just your 3PL, like, cool, we're just your 3PL. For if we're just your branding agency, cool. We like, we just do your brand design and then you, you know, you want a new deck or you want a new website and we'll do that too. We can just be a manufacturer for you. We can just be your software platform. But if we're doing like five of those things for you, then what we're really doing is helping you operate your business. We're accelerating your growth. And the other way to define it is when we basically trade upfront service costs, like what an agency would do for long-term gain. That could be rev share. It could be equity. It could be a combination of both. But we're saying we're going to hold our breath on the win here. We're going to win with you long-term in the end. And if we're doing that with you, then you're in our accelerator. And I also characterize us as being responsible for growth in either of those scenarios. So if we are expanding your marketplace presence, or if we are your sales reps, basically, and we're, you know, we're calling every museum store in the country to try to get an order for six <laughs> items at the end of January, you're in our accelerator. And step number three is a venture equity studio. We're not there yet, but we got, we're getting close. I say we're not there because we haven't raised a full fund, but we're almost there because we've already started to acquire businesses into Manifest and then operate them effectively like in our accelerator, but as wholly owned entities in-house. So what I want to do, what's next is a venture equity studio will raise, it's not going to be a huge fund, I don't think, but somewhere on the order of 25 to $50 million. And we're going to deploy that into businesses that are ready to grow and need help. It'll be a seed stage fund. And what's going to make us different, or my thesis, my investment thesis, is that good ideas get funded all the time, but good ideas fail all the time. One in every 20 venture-backed companies succeed, and the other 19 fail. Like, why do they fail? It can't be because the idea was bad. They're venture-backed companies. We're not even talking about the hundreds of companies that don't get funded in this mathematical construct. We're just talking about the 20 that were good enough ideas to get funding but still 19 of them fail. Why are they failing? They're failing because of operations. They're failing because of execution. And they're probably failing because of unknown unknowns that couldn't be exposed when their good idea got funding, but that they discovered along the way. And aside from extrinsic market powers and stuff like that, businesses are failing because of operations. So our thesis is that if we can be an activist investor, sort of like a PE fund would be, but on venture scale and at seed stage, then we can help great ideas stay alive by participating in the execution and the operations of the brands that are in our portfolio. So that's what's next. Yeah, it makes sense. It's totally aligned. We've actually had other guests that have had a very similar model in that as well. I think that's excellent. Last question I have for you is if you could have a conversation with your younger self, what advice would you give them? What would that conversation look like? Besides reading the accounting book? That's it. It's <laughs> <laughs> just the accounting book. Never mind. I forgot we already got your answer. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to give you a surprising answer. It's not that adjacent to like the conversation that we just had, but do read the accounting book. My advice to myself would be not to stay in bad relationships 
Now there's a very specific antidote around this and it's not a personal relationship. I'm talking, I was an employee and it was a bad relationship. My boss was mean. I had a terrible time working there. I was really young. I probably was doing a lot of things wrong, but I didn't know it because I wasn't getting any feedback. And I stayed in that, I'm calling it a bad relationship because I want this to be abstractable to lots of other situations. But really, it was just like, if your job sucks, you should quit. (laughs) 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 But not being in bad relationships is a way that we can make it very broadly applicable. I was in a bad employer-employer relationship. It wasn't working for either side. I was afraid of quitting because I was afraid of failing. And I thought, my young self thought that if I just continued to grind it out, that my sweat and tears, literally, (laughs) would get me out of any situation I was in. And I, I was too scared to say, this just isn't working and I need to give myself time and space to find something better. And I think that that's true of any relationship. If it's not working, call it. <laughs> but my advice is to apply. I mean, that's really easy advice to apply to romantic relationships. It's pretty obvious. If you don't love someone, don't be with them. But I think it's harder for people to apply, at least from my generation, the, the generation of like, please don't quit. And also like jobs are scarce. <laughs> so like, if you have one, you should keep with it. And I wish I had had like a little bit more of a, maybe this generational, like the generation that's coming up approach to it, which is just, I value my happiness. I value my time. I value myself and I'm gonna stick up for it, man. So yeah, anyway, hopefully that has stuck with me for long enough now to become a useful life lesson for other people too. I love it. And I think about that where if you're giving it all that you have and you know that you're really giving all that you have and you're just stuck in this cycle and this thing is just becoming more negative, it's just not going anywhere. You don't owe the business that you're working for anything because the second they've got to do layoffs, the business has to survive. And I understand that part of it as well. So it's like, you don't owe anybody anything. So I love that advice. Sam, this has been a lot of fun. Thank you so much for coming on. I really enjoyed this. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. Let's do it again. If you're looking for some friends to build stuff with, keep me in mind. 100%. I love it. (laughs) I hope you enjoyed Sam and I's conversation. I loved hearing Sam's take on the power of connecting with people through storytelling. If you want to learn more about Sam, you could find her on LinkedIn in the show notes. Also, if you like this episode, you can find me on LinkedIn to let me know. And if you really want to support the show, a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify is very much appreciated. Thanks for listening, everybody, and I'll see you next week.